Listen, if you're constantly tired of juggling all the business problems yourself and not having a sound individual to bounce your ideas off of the problems off of your generated solutions for less than what you're probably paying one of your part-time coaches, you literally could have a conversation with me daily, fuck weekly with me, with your staff. And then we get on a call monthly. I've got an app and a platform that I use, what do I call the bat phone that allows you to get in contact with me throughout the day. Literally, you can ping me and hit me up and let me know shit's going on. This is the situation. I need some assistance in making the right decision, and I'm there for you. This is what I do for gym owners. I do it for up to about 40 gyms at a given time, and I'm always graduating or getting fired, like graduating the gym owner or getting fired myself. I, you know, I've talked about this in pre-roll before. I like getting fired. I want to get fired. I don't want you to be stuck on the, the WTF tit. I want my gym owners to be self-sufficient, but there are times when you could use some assistance. That's why I don't do any contracts. Everything is month to month. You use me for as long as you need to use me, and then you fire me. And you can always hit me back up if another problem arises. But if you're in a position where you're like, fuck, man, I, I've got some money. I let you know for what I'm paying a part-time coach, sure, I'd love to have someone who knows this better than I do and can help me just make the smarter decisions faster. You can sit there and research it yourself and YouTube and watch all the videos and, and make, you know, six months of bad decisions, or we could have had a 10 minute conversation and you made the right one and moved on with the rest of your day, the rest of your business this year and got the shit done. You want to get done. If this interests you at all, please shoot me a DM over on WTF gym talk on Instagram. And I would love to chat with you. I'd love to just know what you got going on. See if we're a good fit. We can talk a little bit there. Um, guys, that's it. This is what I do. It's what I love doing. I love solving problems for gym owners. I like different problems. And I eventually, I love getting fired. I want to get fired so that you go on and do your fucking thing. And I'm glad I was able to be a part of it for that period of time. So if this resonates with you at all, please go ahead, shoot me a DM. Let's chat. Otherwise, enjoy the podcast. Yeah, dude, I, I'm very excited to do this. This is, uh, this is fun, man. It's been, dude, I went back and looked at it. In the time we worked together, we exchanged 567 emails that spanned from like the, no, like from the beginning of 2013 when we started working together, um, all or the end of 2013 going into 2014, um, and I think we started officially started working together in February 2014, and then all the way, and then even you know when, with you relocating and and closing the gym and moving to Georgia and all that, it's just I was just going back and kind of uh, looking through my email chain of everything we did together. Then when um, and then when I was doing the the work with Preston. And you were, and I was doing that like kind of like internship where you were having me write for Preston at the time. He was the oldest CrossFit, like, I think he was the re oldest regional competitor the previous year. And yeah, at th what, 30, how old was he at that year? Was he, so that was 2014. So he would have been 34 or 35. By 35, I think. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, the dude was a fucking animal. Such an I animal. I think the next year, what's what's really crazy is the next year, I think the oldest regional competitor was Guido at yeah. 35 as well. So anyway, I was just looking back through all that, man. So this is this is a ton of fun. Um anything you want to make sure that we jam on today? Like, like obviously I'll push um, forward that I'll help push forward for you guys. Yeah, we just launched the our coaching movement course, which is on my it's almost entirely focused on um teaching people our systems for analyzing movement for running movement screens and then going from like a movement analysis a movement screen to program design like taking okay. that first step from i've got a brand new client and now i want to like actually start working with them and actually create change um we just launched it it's like it's been in the market for two weeks so right i'd love to talk talk on that and actually yeah. i think it, it connects to our conversation really well as it is, right? Because, yeah. well, I don't want to dig too much into it, but I think movement economy is a huge part of of connecting concurrent training. So yeah. Awesome, dude. Well cool. Let's uh let's go ahead and jump into it. Uh, there we go. Yeah. I don't want any distractions. All righty. What is up guys? It is Stu. It is another episode of the What the Fuck Gym Talk podcast. And I have a longtime friend and colleague and former coach of mine, Kyle Ruth. Kyle was a colleague of mine in the North Carolina, uh, the Charlotte market. He was right outside of Charlotte in the Lake Norman area. That's where he was CrossFit affiliate. I had gone down the OPEX 
educational route in 2013. I had gone and spent five days with James and did that whole thing. And and anyone who was in OPEX back in the day, you recognize this bald, stockier guy in the videos uh, named Max El Haj. And you go down the rabbit hole, you realize they kind of went their own separate ways. Max went to Georgia. He started working with Kyle. Kyle was a very accomplished regional athlete at the time in, in the CrossFit space. And Kyle's right down the street from me. And I read out, reached out to George. Is that George Maloney? Paul, yeah, Paul, John, John, John Maloney. John. Yeah, yeah. So I reached out to John. End of 2013, beginning of 2014, I was like, hey, I've been following Kyle's shit. I, I like what he's doing with training Think Tank. I mean, I'm curious. I'd like to start working with someone, owning a gym. You know, At that point, I was kind of pretty hands-off at the gym in 2014, and I wanted to really get into this thing that I thought was going to be very, very successful. It was program design for high-level athletes, and that's what led me to you, working with you, uh, hiring you as my coach, and then I got to work with you, uh, and I got to even – I got to then coach one of your athletes, your co your co uh, colleagues and competitors, Preston Austin, and um, anyway, this cool thing happened. You you ended up – you sold the gym. You moved down training thing tank. You've, I mean, you're still doing that today, so dude, uh, I'm going to shut the fuck up now. Do me a favor, Kyle. Give everyone quid the quick you know, 90-second rundown of your kind of fitness athletic. This is where I am now with training think tank. Yeah. I'm not sure I can pack all that into 90 seconds too. So that's it's a, it's a rough a timeline. You, it's a rough timeline. You can take, you have your take, uh, uh, take your leisures. I think I was probably about 15 years old when I realized I wanted to be a coach. Um, I was a competitive swimmer in high school and I started taking it really seriously. And I realized how much there was, to be, I, I realized how much there could be gained and learned in the coaching space. And I read this book, uh, it's called Swimming Fastest by Ernest McGlisco. I, I read the second edition and it was like 2000 pages. So I skipped all my, you know, high school assignments and stuff to read this 2000 page treatise on swimming science. Right. And that like, that clicked. I was like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go, I'm going to study exercise physiology. I'm going to go at the time I was sure I was going to get a PhD. I didn't end up going all, all the way through the PhD. I ended up getting a master's in applied sports science, but swam in college, started coaching when I was 20. So I've now been coaching for 17. I, I wrote my first training program when I was 19, but started coaching when I was 20. So I'm 37, I'm about to be 38. So working on my 18th year of coaching athletes and just been dug into it ever since, but, uh, athletic, athletic career. I was a swimmer, swam in college, swam post-grad, tr kept trying to go. I had these big aspirations to be an Olympic swimmer, but I swam the hundred butterfly. And there was this guy named Michael Phelps. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Um, he took one of the two spots that were available <laughs> <laughs> all years that I had tried to, to make it. It was just like impossible. So I, I realized at some point that that wasn't realistic, but I still needed a competitive outlet. Uh, you know, it's weird. I know a lot of coaches when they step out of competing, they're, they're comfortable, you know, you know, competing vicariously through their athletes. And I love helping my athletes succeed and compete, but I am just a very, very competitive person. I found CrossFit started, started CrossFit. And within, you know, a week I was like, yep, this is it. This is my new competitive endeavor and dug into it hundred percent. And I brought the same level of like, in, you know, intrigue and curiosity that I had about swimming as a, a high schooler. When I started to really take it seriously, I brought that into CrossFit and just tried to learn as much as I could dug into every seminar imaginable. I, you know, I, I couldn't even tell you how many of the, you know, the early on CrossFit um, you know, kettlebell endurance, da, 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 all that stuff, the weightlifting, all that stuff that I did. And then I went and did the old OPT cert before it was OPEX. Um, and then I met Max and I went to a seminar of his out in, in Scottsdale. And it, I just, it just blew my mind. I like it resonated. Everything he was saying was like, this is, this is, a, he's talking to me. And I ended up, you know, I ended up working as a remote coach for Max for, from like 2013, right around the time that I, you know, you and I started working together and, you know, he opened a facility here in Georgia in 2015. I was like, man, I need to get out there. Like I just saw that this was, there was an opportunity here and we came out here. We started making educational content, started making courses, had opportunities to work with games athletes. At this point I've worked with, I've been to the games on a team and I have now coached athletes in every division at the CrossFit games not every master's division, but I've coached masters in 35 to 39 in 40 to 44 in 55 to 59, 
you know what I mean? And then yep. team, team, individual, the the works. So that's kind of like every that was as close to 90 seconds to get to yep. where we are today. That's, that's good possible. though. That's, <laughs> that, that's good. So I in listen, you and me, like we we stayed in touch a little bit. You once you moved out of North Carolina, and you know, in 20, I would say it was honestly, it was probably towards the end, like right around the time of your departure. And I was, you know, slowly inside of my CrossFit gym. I was just having this little bit of angst. You can't go and learn from James for five days and then study under you for over a year. I've got, I still have, dude, I still have the little welded training thing, tank thing you get after like whatever, two years or a year, whatever the, whatever the duration of time is with you guys that you send out to the athletes. I still have that on one of my, my shelves here. And then go to your CrossFit gym. And run the same kind of pro- – and just look at people that are walking in the doors and be like, man, everyone needs to do touch-and-go snatches 21-15. <laughs> like, you just can't anymore. And everyone – I think a lot of people um, – and I don't even know how much of, like, the – you know, me shutting down CrossFit, de-affiliating, opening up Urban Movement. And I just – I literally went to the thing that I was doing with everybody as a beginner – not as much in the intermediate, but then when they were more advanced again, I was always coming back to some level of more tempo work because I looked at CrossFit and I looked at, at all the modifiable variables that we have in CrossFit and that we alter in programming and in your programming and in stuff I saw with James and OPEX, it, tempo was always a discussion, but elsewhere in the CrossFit yeah. world, going slow doesn't make any sense. It's like you're speaking a different language, even if it's just purposeful, even if it's just through to get through a sticking point like Anderson squats or whatever it may be. People just didn't get it. So I, uh, and also there's, there's a lot that, of hate. Oh, there's a, a lot ton. of hate in the market for, for tempo training. People, people despise the the concept of tempo training. I think part of that, it, it, you know, it, I wouldn't say it originated with Poliquin, but Poliquin, you know, kind of popularized it. And people, they, they love to tell you how it doesn't work and it doesn't, but the reality is slowing down and thinking about the way that you're moving matters. I mean, it, it's, it's a huge factor, especially, you know, you mentioned, you know, I, I think about it like a bell curve. You have your, your beginners, you know, at the, the left side of the bell curve and you have your advanced at the right side of the bell curve. And at those two extreme ends, that's where, like you said, that's where tempo training is like, that's where it lives. Absolutely. You know, it, like it has to. You're learning or 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 stabilizing or refining early on and then mastering later on in your career. So I went down when I switched over to urban movement and we got rid of CrossFit and I developed what I called tempo training, which was my group fitness model where everything was prescribed resistance training based at a tempo. We had certain types of classes, certain days, days where there was no tempo. We were going for more, you know, speed strength, stuff like that. And, and it worked really well. And I went down the rabbit hole. I started studying the shit out of Ian King out of Australia, who originally, you know, I believe coined tempo and then Poliquin took it out, took it to the US and popularized it with the four number. Everyone knows three, one, X, one. Like that's that's a Poliquin interpretation. Ian King's in Australia was just three digits. He just ran with three. And originally he'd even he call it, he just called it SOM, speed of movement. And he just articulate things that way. So I go down this, we create the group model, it worked out great. Um, and then got to retire last year uh, in 2021 from buying that building and so on and so forth. And then I start doing my own thing and it's still, I find it's all tempo based. I mean, we're, I'm 37 as well. We're the same age. You have way more wear and tear in your body than I do, especially with swimming and, and all the other stuff that you've done. But I found at that stage, I kind of like these longer workouts where I, you know, if you had to uh, subscribe it to a five zone model, I'm probably a zone four to three, somewhere in there. And right. I liked not having to, I don't, I don't care what my one RM was anymore. I'd like to take 70 to 85% of my one RM. And if I can like manhandle it, like I didn't have to let that barbell come crashing down on my collarbone after getting overhead, I could actually eccentrically control it down. I really started to enjoy that challenge. And I found things worked better. I remember one time I hit, I don't know if you remember this. I hit you up about wanting to get the athletes better, my members of the gym better at strict pull-ups. And I remember you like have them work on eccentrically controlling the barbell back to their collarbone. Because when you control that barbell back down to the collarbone eccentrically, you're essentially working on similar movement patterns as a negative pull-up right back down. And we started doing that and that worked phenomenally. That was one of those moments. And I had multiple of those where I was like, oh fuck, there's so much good application for tempo, but in the world of three, two, one, go, whiteboard equals fastest time. It just wasn't there. Like nobody wanted, nobody, nobody listened to it. 
Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for applying, especially eccentrics, right? So I think what where's the magic in tempo, right? Well, well, we just break down tempo. We have the eccentric phase. So when the best way to think about that is when you're lowering a load, right? So you, you unrack a barbell out of the rack and you have a three second, you know, an at three, one X one tempo. It's a three second negative. That's the eccentric portion. That's where a lot of the magic from tempo happens. And at least in my mind is learning to control the eccentric muscles, like from a physiology perspective, muscles are so much stronger in that eccentric phase, right? We can tolerate loads that are far beyond what we can press up. Like imagine a bench press, right? Like you can lower way more weight to your chest than you can press off your chest. And by lengthening out that eccentric phase, you're, you're really training an entirely different part of the strength curve and developing strength in a way that you really can't, you know, just go in with weights that you can move quickly, concentrically. Um, and then, you know, I think the other thing is with pauses, right? So you have your pause at the bottom, your pause at the top and like, imagine squats, like pause squats, learning to be able to move out of the hole with no momentum, with no bounce. Like, right. One of the things we're trying to do as a CrossFitter, you know, I'm constantly trying to do this is leverage momentum, right? Because I'm looking for efficiency, but, but adding tempo to things and adding pauses in the bottom takes away your ability to leverage momentum. And you have to overcome all of that work muscularly. And I think there's something to be said for, you know, integrating tempo work into your regular training for those, just those two reasons, right? Learning to build strength without leveraging momentum, which is what we pretty much all do from a strength perspective. Because if you think about it, the way we test strength, it's your 1RM back squat, right? How does everyone test it? 1RM back squat, 1RM bench press, 1RM deadlift. That's how you test strength. But all of those things are momentum-based lifts, right? Like the squat, it's not like you're going down there and pausing in the hole at your 1RM. If you do that, you're stuck. Yeah, you're using right? that stretch shortening cycle and you're bouncing the hell out of the hole. Exactly. People are learning to leverage momentum, which is an efficiency thing, but it's not necessarily the best way to build strength in positions. And I think that's really where tempo comes in is it, it really does allow us to, to learn to use muscles to build strength. And this is where, again, years removed, we haven't seen each other in person in forever. I used to drive up. Like I used to like, I loved it. We had the gym at such a good place. I would just drive up 20 minutes up to your gym, hang out. I literally came up one time. You had me, there was a test you had me doing. It was like, it was some test you had me doing. And uh, I'm like, can I come up and do in person? You're like, yeah, sure. I mean, literally it's a six minute test. Like we're going to be done in six minutes. Like, fuck it. I don't care. <laughs> I'd rather have your eyes on me and get in someone else's gym. And I always love that. But fast forward just last year, your like your face and your words are ringing in my ears as I'm kind of designing this tempo training, you know, just for myself, I'm just working out now and finding my workouts. I'm really kind of testing these longer workouts. I'm talking, you know, 60 minutes, 90 minutes. And then I signed up for the Chicago marathon, a buddy of mine passed away and I wanted to do it and, and run in his honor. And I'm not a runner. I'm not a runner at all. Um, so I started getting into running. I, I did a competitive 5k and now I got a half marathon in two weeks in Austin, Texas. I'm going to, and I'll do the only marathon I'll run is actually at the Chicago marathon in October, but I wanted I, three hours is the goal. So now I'm thinking, I'm like, okay, thinking back to the shit you taught me, I'm like, okay, type one muscle fibers, right? Those are slow, you know, very, you know, they diet, you know, they, they're very enduring, but they're not very powerful or type two muscle fibers, very explosive, whatever with tempo. If I'm controlling the eccentric and I'm even throwing isometric pauses in there, but I still stay explosive on the concentric. Can I kind of hit on both the wavelength of both of these? Cause I'm not a type one guy. I'm not an endurance yeah. guy. So, yeah, that, so I want, I wanted to ask, I was that's kind of what I was getting at. You know, when yeah. I say it's a different part of the strength curve, a lot of the research shows that during the eccentric phase, if you use longer tempo eccentrics, it's actually potentially hypertrophying. So growing those slow twitch, those type one muscle fibers. And it's not, I mean, there's other ways to do that, right? There's, there's plenty of other ways to accomplish that same goal. Things like, you know, reps to fit higher rep ranges to failure with lighter loads and things like that. But Man, you think about your your 37 and and I'm sure there's people that are going to be listening that are way older than us, right? And so I'm not going to say that we're super old, but our training age, I mean my my training age at this point, I was talking to someone the other day, it's like 23 years of high level competition, right? That's a pretty big training age. It is. And would I really want to do a bunch of sets of like 
20 to 30 reps at low loads and just take that joint wear and tear? Or do I want to use some, like, like you were mentioning moderate loads and use tempos to, to accomplish the same task, especially if I'm already, you know, if you're training for a marathon, you already have this really high eccentric volume from every foot strike during your running. Like there's something to be said for doing something that's going to reduce volume load, but also still build some of those slow twitch type one fibers. And, and lend itself, you know, when I went the marathon training, I was like, I don't want to do uh, a Hal Haggard, typical, just a standard Jack Daniels running. I don't want to just go and clock 30 plus miles a week. Like, yeah. right. Like I want to see if I do this at the minimum viable distance. And that's where the, this, this experiment of mine with using tempo training to do this. And then another name that you had given to me and I followed him on Instagram just cause you told me to back in like 2014. And I've never paid attention to him ever since, but Alex Viata. Yep. You turned me on to Alex Viata back then, and I and I even downloaded the Hybrid Athlete, the book he wrote. Yep. And I, you know, I went through it back then, but now it's so much more applicable to me. So I'm going back through this, and you know, he's talking so much. You know, even go, you know, um, the Hybrid Athlete. So a lot of people see like Nick Bear with BPN supplements. A lot of people call this Hybrid Athlete thing. I would, I mean, I don't know what you think. I think Alex originally kind of really laid the groundwork on that on that ebook he wrote back in the day. I, I think I would absolutely agree with that. Yeah, and I mean, like, so real quick uh, for the, the the Hybrid Athlete. This is how Alex uh, I wrote it down this morning. It is the concurrent training of different athletic disciplines that do not explicitly support one another and whose disparate components are not essential to the success at any one sport. So hybrid training essentially being a concurrent training model, which we most people know is some variation or combination of resistance training and endurance looking to do decent and well in both. And this is where concurrent training. And I, when I messaged you on this, I really wanted to get your opinions on this. And cause you, with you, your main, your main athlete, is it mainly CrossFitters? Yeah. Mostly okay. cross. I've also worked with, um, you know, some Ironman triathletes, and those are, they're interesting. We can, we can dig into that in a minute, but you go ahead. Yeah. I was curious. I wanted to talk to you around concurrent training and everything, you know, there's very little research on intra-session concurrent training, which looks more like CrossFit, some endurance training, immediately followed by some resistance training, immediately followed by some endurance training and then resistance training, kind of, right? Like, you know, think yeah. of a long chipper where you have 800 meter runs in between or something like that, right? Which 800 meters is not really endurance training, but for a CrossFit world, that would be a longer effort. And then there's segmented concurrent training, which is what most people do. AM, I'm gonna do resistance training or endurance training later in the day, I'll do the opposite. I'll do whichever one I didn't hit in the AM. Why do we not see more research on intra-session concurrent training? Because I have found maybe two decent research studies on it that all showed improvements of aerobic capacity, one of them at the four-kilometer testing pace, double blinds, like real decent studies, but beyond that, not much of anything. I think part of it is that, you know, I think back to when I was in undergrad and graduate school. And this was, you know, I, I finished my graduate work in 2010 or 2011. I can't, I can't remember at this point. <laughs> but the idea that people would want to do concurrent training, especially intercession concurrent training, just didn't really exist outside of like the upper echelons of sport. And I say that as an example, like CrossFit really hadn't hit the, the, the mainstream at that point. So the idea that you would combine these two training styles that are almost on complete opposite ends of the spectrum that up to that point, up to about that 2010, 2011, everybody from the scientific community believed, you know, they, they were, they were incompatible that training endurance work would, uh, would automatically decrease adaptation to strength work and strength work would most likely decrease adaptation to endurance work and that the two were not compatible. So why in the world would you want to combine the two? The only places that it was being done were like in the upper echelons of, of sport, right? I think back to, to swimming and we would do things where we'd be in the, we had a weight room, which was, this was an awesome setup, but we had a weight room at the pool, right? So it was like, oh, that's it was sick. like two minute between, between the two places. And we were doing some stuff where, you know, it was more like activation and potentiation type work in the weight room. And then we would go and we'd be sprinting in the pool. And you started to see around that same time, you know, early 2000s to, to you know, 2010, started to see track and field athletes start to do that. And some other athletes start to start, start to leverage the combination 
training. And I'm not sure if that was a result of people seeing what CrossFitters were doing, you know, the real early days of CrossFit, 2006, 2007, 2008, and being like, hmm, there might be something to this. Or if like everyone was just kind of arriving at like the next evolution in, in training, which is like there, there's some some value in combining, like I, I think Viata said it well, disparate elements of of training. I think there really is some some value to doing that. That can't be, it's not the same as doing them separately, right? You it's not like you know, you you do endurance work in your AM and strength training in your PM, and you get the same adaptation as if you do endurance work interspersed with intervals of strength training They're, they don't result in the same types of adaptations. Yeah. You get compromised adaptation, which, you know, in the world of, I just came upon this and have gone down the rabbit hole. I didn't know what high rocks was. I had no fucking clue, dude. I had no clue. Nuts, right, it, Bro from a business perspective. And I know you can respect this. They will get more endurance athletes to jump into that sport because it's the same. It's, you know, marathon is 26.2. And you know how you were talking about your triathletes and you were like, oh, we'll talk about them later. I get it. I have immersed myself in the endurance community. My girlfriend's family is Enduros. They're Ironmans. Like I talk there. It's a very specific type of client. They want to know the only th variables they can tolerate, weather and maybe themselves. But that's it. Like beyond that, they got to know the distance. They got to clock it. Their dad, endurance athletes are the biggest data nerds ever, which I, I've kind of resonated with them because I am as well. But I look at high rocks, which is this sport of essentially being able to have compromised running, some level of power with that sled work they do. But mainly, you know, it's a 60 minute type time domain. And it makes me think like Memorial Day Murph. I can't even probably guess the amount of athletes that have asked you to help you know, taper and peak them for a Murph type event. And yeah. um, you look at Alex Blennis set the world record in Murph, whatever it was at 34 minutes a couple of years ago or whatever. And I, um, I actually, he's come on the podcast later on today as well. Um, I look at Murph for the average person, as long as muscular endurance, like, isn't really your thing. If you could do your 20 rounds of Cindy, five pull-ups, 10 push-ups, 15 squats, and you could just maintain the, the biggest thing about Murph is the time domain. Because as a CrossFitter, you go to a CrossFit gym and we're running businesses. We can't run 45-minute workouts, 60-minute workouts. I got to run a fucking business and get the next class in here. So the average CrossFitter in a gym lives in a time domain of 15 minutes, 20 yeah, 15, minutes. 15 to 20 minutes at, at max. Yeah. So then you go and you do something like Murph, which I look at Murph and I'm like, why does everyone make such a big deal about this? And let's take out the, the tribute to Michael Murphy, which is awesome. But take that out of the equation. It's because the time domain is too to three X longer than they have typically ever trained. It's not the movements. It's all body weight. Like you're going to come into muscular endurance and failure at some point. Everybody is right. It's, you know, loaded with a vest, not loaded. I'm like, it's that time domain. I'm like, damn it. I wish more recreational functional fitness people would see the benefit in thinking more of strength endurance as part of their spectrum. Cause they're, they do their three by three, five by seven, six dot six dot six, whatever strength work you're doing. And then you do a Metcon but they never live in that type one, that far end endurance piece, even if it was intracession concurrent training. Yeah. I think there, there's some, some real value to spending time working the, the higher rep end or even the tempo end of the training spectrum. You know, I, we, we touched on that a little bit, but I think a lot of, you know, from a high level perspective, if I look at my athletes training program, a lot of the, the muscular endurance stuff does get covered in their Metcons. You know what I mean? Like, but that's because I'm thinking about programming muscular endurance work in Metcons. And I don't know if that happens necessarily in, you know, uh, in run of the mill training. Yeah. Think, and template great for a group, right? And you, yes. you can't really, like, uh, we all know the hardest thing. Like, oh man, we really got to get some unilateral muscular endurance in here. You're like, man, how, can I make, can I make 50 foot walking lunges work in my group classes and have enough space to make sure everyone can, yeah. Like you're not necessarily thinking about optimal training stimulus. Now, that's one of the advantages I have being a, an individual coach versus a group class coach where I I'm constrained by the fact that I have to fit everything inside my gym. I have to fit everything inside, like you said, a, a particular, you know, time frame. where as an individual coach, you're not constrained by that. You're like, okay, well, I've got two and a half hours with this athlete right now. What, do, what 
training qualities do they need to optimize? So it is thinking about it differently. But there's also, you know, there's an entire other end of the spectrum that people are missing as well. So we're talking about the slow, like type one, people are missing, they're, they're working one RMs, but people aren't working speed strength. Right. They're not they're not training at like, you know, Westside does such a good job of this with their accommodating resistance where they're doing, you know, 65 to 75 percent for that seven by two, you know, that dynamic day, the dynamic effort day. People are missing that as well. It's like there's these two complete opposite ends of the spectrum and everyone lives in the middle. Right. And they're missing the far speed strength end, which would probably build their one RMs with half without having to lift you know, 95% of their one RM all the time. And they're also missing the strength endurance into the spectrum where they could be accomplishing that with tempo or higher volume, you know, higher time under tension work. And I feel like both those ends of the spectrum are almost just completely missed in the common training world today. I, I would agree hundred percent. I, uh, I've also seen it. This is funny because you and me, the, this name will resonate with us. You know, COVID happens and the Ben Patrick character, uh, you know, knees over toes pops on the scene. And, and, you know, he's bringing the he's bringing to light things that Poliquin said years ago. I mean, I even heard uh, Dave Tate and Louis Simmons with the sled. And so when I see all this sled work, I'm like, oh, you mean a prowler? People are like, what's a prowler? I'm like, bro, that's the only brand of sled we had back. And like, that was the, that was the brand yeah. of sled was a prowler. And that came from the West side, the, the elite ETF, the, like the powerlifting co community, they would March sleds constantly because there was no loaded eccentric. No, so in I my head, have athletes doing that. Oh long, yeah, long grinding loaded sled stuff. You know, and, early on in CrossFit, that that made an appearance. People used yes. Like, when I first got into it around you know the 2011 mark, people were still doing 800 meter sled drags and stuff, but it disappeared um, slowly. But it disappeared from like 2011 to 2013 to the point that like. People just weren't doing it anymore. Yeah. And when you think about, I mean, when I was thinking of time under tension, I'm like what lower body training like movement can I do to create constant, I mean, constant tension. It's not squat. I, I don't get whatever, whatever variation I'm going to have to let the load go. I even went and bought the squat max MD, which is a great belt squat, you know, to go ahead and constantly have that on my hips versus my back or front rack, but it's the sled. I can just keep pushing and pushing and there's no loaded eccentrics. I never have the doms the next day. And it's just, I mean, then you get into, okay, what can I do with it at the upper body variety? Remember the CrossFit games, you know, this, the, the standing sled pull hand over hand, just hauling that oh, thing yeah. in. You think about a constant rotational tension, biceps, scaps, and it doesn't stop. It's just like pushing the sled. So I went and bought a fucking 50 foot rope like that. And now I pull heavy as hell sleds and then i saw the exact same thing at high rocks high rocks is doing these things you know probably gave me the idea about it in the beginning i was just like these movements and these adaptations are great they're not great for a business model like again gyms that you know having 20 people with sleds and all this shit i get it it's not gonna work your space has to be too big but from a training you're gonna need 10 10 torque tanks yeah right? exactly right each side to be able to run it in a, in a gym yeah but i'm gift i'm lucky like you have this amazing playground at training think tank i there's a great gym uh brand new open up they give me open gym access they're phenomenal but most of your remote athletes are they having to just like find a cross gym that's cool with them doing open gym off to the side and they kind of got to figure it out when class starts or are they, are they just doing their own home garage gyms? Where are most people training these days? That's a really good question. I, I have a really diverse uh, training population. Uh, most of them are, you know, higher level competitive athletes that are either head coaches at their respective gyms. So they kind of have some, some freedom to do what they, what they want within that or affiliate owners where, you know, they, they train when their clients are not training. So they have these two to three hour blocks multiple times throughout the day where they can get their training in or people who have, you know, who, who do an open gym thing, but they also have their own home outfit. You know what I mean? They have their own barn gym or garage gym where that gives them some freedom, but also, you know, we would talk about constraints, you know, there's always going to be major training constraints for, for, especially for people that are operating out of a garage. I mean, I do a significant portion of my training at home just as part of, you know, the, the requirement for my schedule and being a dad and, and, and all that. Um, and there's huge constraints like walking lunges are, are impossible. Handstand walking is impossible, right? Just not things that I can train consistently. So for me, I got to be creative about how I approach some of those things to create time under tension in various ways. Yeah. Um, 
but no, for the majority of my athlete population, you know, they really are able to, to do kind of whatever we want to do. And there might be constraints on certain days and things like that, but you know, it, that's not necessarily for the individual population. The people that are doing it are people that have the ability to do it well. Yeah. The, for your population, your athletes, the one thing that I can tell them, and I, I see this on uh, a lot of the commercial real estate stuff I do with gym owners now and traveling and meeting, there's a lot of really good brands coming out that have realized no staff. I'm going to get a 6,000 square foot, 4,000 square foot spot. It's just going to be an open gym model, 24 seven access. And it's going to look like a collegiate weight room squat racks where each squat rack has everything you need for a workout type scenario, turf, sled, whatever. And it's just 24 seven. And it's designed for the functional fitnesser who doesn't want someone else's recipe and a group fitness model. They have a coach or they have their own recipe and they want to go in and just use it and get it done. But they want to be around other people doing that type of workout. You can't get that done at the YMC and the gold's gym. So there's some of these great brands I've been traveling around that are just, again, you don't pay a staff anything. You just have cameras out the ass, your insurance is a little bit more, but just 24 seven access athletes come in, do their training, they leave but it's just this playground with no classes, nothing. And um, I think we're going to see a lot more of that because I, you, we can't be educating. I think of how many people have kind of gone through the quote, quote, CrossFit educational system or group fitness educational system. And they eventually maybe do group for a while. Then they get to someone like you or an organization like training think tank. And now we, you just keep educating and educating. You almost get an autonomous, essentially fitness user who, needs a coach because they want the game plan. They want someone to bounce ideas off of. They want someone to have these conversations, high level conversations with, but they don't need, I don't want, you know, they don't need the, we don't need your group class workout, but they need your equipment and they need the space. That's the limited resource. Yeah. And I think the other thing is a lot of people that are, you know, have gotten really deep in the fitness space. What they've kind of arrived at is that their goals are, are different than what group classes are serving. You know, I think group classes serve a purpose. There is something to be said. You know that as, as well as I do. You know, you've, you've talked a lot about micro gyms and how important the community aspect is and the purpose that it serves for the people that are there. But there's also a group of people who are competitive athletes and that does not serve that purpose at all, right? Sure. Like it is, if you are someone who aspires to go to the CrossFit games or compete at, at a high level in high rocks or something like that, group classes don't serve those purposes that an hour long training session is not long enough to be competitive in a sport as competitive as CrossFit or now, I mean, I've seen some of the high rock stuff, man. It is getting in competitive to the point that you're not just training an hour to go compete in that hour long endurance event, you know, like, Oh yeah. At which, which would be completely unsustainable in a group training model, because what are you going to do? Run 90 minute classes. Now you're already, you're cutting into your profit margin right yeah. away. hundred percent. And it's also like, uh, we had clients that were rock climbers. I mean, those guys rock climbing on the weekend is what they live for. So if they come in on a Thursday and I'm prescribing a hundred fucking pull-ups, I just, I fucked this guy's weekend up. Like it's, you know, it's, so it's, you're right. It's not an alignment with, but when that's the only recipe, um, all right. So I want to, I want to ask one more thing regarding this, um, this experiment of mine uh, with tempo training. So the thing with tempo, the sacrifice we have to make. Obviously, if you're going to lift slower, you're not going to be able to lift as much, especially if you're having, you know, various isometric holds and you're really controlling that eccentric. Everything I've read, like from a hypertrophy, because I'm at that stage and I know you're still you're chasing sport and performance minus this marathon. I'm just chasing aesthetics, feel good, look good. Hypertrophy gains while still operating at 70 to 85 percent of a one RM, 60 to 85 percent one RM with higher volume. Like I've always been a good volume guy. Like GVT was like my thing back. And I'm an ectomorph, right? I'm a skinny guy. I respond well to volume. Um, the hypertrophy opportunities for people like, but I got to lift heavy in order to look big and be strong or ha- look the way I want physique wise. And as you age over time, we count all the knee flexion reps you're doing, all the hinging reps you're doing that heavy, heavy 85, 90, 90% loads. The risk to reward, in my opinion, just wasn't there anymore for me. But uh, again, and I'm on I'm on TRT and I'm on the drugs and I'm doing all the things, but take that aside, 70 to 85% of one RM in, in a tempo training format, are we are we still in a hypertrophy range? Are we essentially doing what bodybuilders have done for years? Well, you got to think about like this. What are the determinants of hypertrophy? What leads to hypertrophy? It's it's fiber fatigue, right? 
it's fatiguing the the local muscle fiber is what leads to hypertrophy. And it's really interesting. If you look at, at hypertrophy research, it doesn't matter if you're using 90% of your one RM or 45% of your one RM, you can drive hypertrophy. It just, what matters is getting to the point where you're fatiguing the fiber, right? It's that mechanical, mechanical stimuli plus fiber fatigue that creates it. So going um, to failure I, or like one or two before failure, what would you recommend for optimal hypertrophy all the way on the last set, all the way on every set? I would say leave one or two reps in reserve for most of your sets and then final set, take it to, take it to failure or, you know, one rep versus one rep shy of failure, especially if it's depending on the exercise, like safety is obviously more paramount than getting the, you know, going to full failure. Um, but the reason I say that is because going to failure creates neuromuscular fatigue. That's going to affect the next set. So it's going to reduce your ability to, to hit volume on your next exercise, or even bleed into the next training session. And so if you leave one rep in reserve and don't go quite to failure, you prevent some of the fatigue mechanisms that are going to prevent you from going and, and doing the amount of volume and, and creating that kind of muscle fatigue that you need in your next training session. And so that would be my, my recommend. I mean, the, does the load that you use matter? Yes. Some I think is the best way to put it. So like 70 to 80% is a good load for creating local muscle fiber fatigue. Um, but I think what matters more is making sure that you are going to that, like, you know, one to two reps in reserve for every set, you know, making sure that you are doing enough sets to create muscle fiber fatigue, but not so many sets that you're creating accumulative fatigue that prevents you from hitting, you know, the rest of your training volume for the session or for the week. And I think that's, I, I think a lot of people in terms of hypertrophy programs go wrong in, in one, they use loads that are too heavy. And so they're just creating neuromuscular fatigue and not really ever getting to the, to fiber fatigue, right? So their nervous system is, is crapping out before the muscle fiber is, um, or they do all their sets of failure, which make it so that they only have like one or two effective sets in each training session. And then everything else afterward is just a wash. And so I think those are from, from a hyper, hypertrophy perspective, that's what matters the most. You know, we talked about concurrent training, you know, combining your endurance training and strength training together. Um, you know, there's a lot to be said. There's a lot of research that says that endurance training will decrease hypertrophy adaptations, but there's also some more recent research that basically says keeping your protein intake close to body weight in terms of, you know, if you weigh 200 pounds, eating 200 grams of, of protein per day negates almost all of that. So like, it's just a, a lot of the early research on the interference of endurance training and hypertrophy, the people were just underfed. Like sure. they do a good job of controlling protein intake for those people. And when you are combining endurance and hypertrophy, the demand for protein is way higher than if you're just doing one or the other. A lot of those studies I've seen too that show the, you know, um, the Hickson interference effect, you know, that famous study from 1980 is, you know, it was like leg extension and running. I was like, well, well, yeah, I mean, that, like I can kind of see, I can see the, the ability yeah. for those to have an interference on each other. You know, I started writing these workouts. So um, like I'll go out, run a 5k, come in. 30 to 40 minutes of tempo training, one upper body, one lower, one midline, all very compound kind of thing. Another 5K, come back in another 40 minutes, another 5K. By the end of I'm, two hours and 10 minutes of total training in, a ton of volume. And I never feel like going through that, my leg is getting my, like I have any specific interference. I have fatigue, which is the whole point. I'm trying to create a compromised state. If I want to run a three hour marathon at a heart rate of 158, right? I kind of have an idea like where I want to be training at as far as that goes. Um, but it's so, and I just, I think the high rocks thing is interesting because it's more of an endurance thing. I think we'll start to see more people think about concurrent training in these longer time formats. The CrossFit games are an aerobic endurance event, but for the average person that's not going to be doing these multiple day, multiple, you know, sessions in a day kind of thing, still training for 60 minutes for most people is an app for training for 30 minutes is an endurance event. I mean, biologically we know it is, but. You know, one of the things I've been thinking about is, is potentially using something like a high rocks in the off season for CrossFitters is basically. That's, that's very cool. I like I've that. Had, I've had a number of conversations with people about the, the potential for using that. Cause you know, it's still relatively sport specific in the sense that, you know, there's squatting, there's pushing, there's pressing, there's pulling, 
right? And it's it is gonna it, it gives people a competitive outlet that leverages a time domain that is beneficial to train in the off season. And I think especially the timing, you know, like their their world championship timing is like smack in the middle of the off season for a CrossFit Games athlete. Yeah. And so I've been thinking more and more and more about like that would be a great thing. And you know, use concurrent training in the off season. So what we're really trying to do in the off season with these guys is like maximize their their strength base. You know, a lot of people don't think about strength base, but like build up absolute strength levels as much as possible and build up endurance levels as much as possible. And then when we get into the season, smash the two together and let them go, hey, you know, let them go ham. That's something I've been given a lot of thought to. It's crazy. You look at the events now. I mean, all the bodies look like runners. They're skinny fat. Like a lot of the people competing are still in that endurance thing. But I think you're going to see this shift. You saw the Hunter McIntyre's kick over there. You're going to see some of these athletes on the CrossFit side. They're like, eh, I'm better off over there. And they're actually cutting some decent okay checks. Um, I'm going to go fuck around over there for a little while. Um, Well, dude, listen. So – you've it's incredible by the way like when you left and you closed down your gym that's a that was a big emotional move and you i mean you took a i'd say it was a gamble training think tank was less than 10 years old as a company i think it was less than like six years old at that point and you went in there and 10 years old as of as of now oh okay so 10 years old now so it's a super young company i remember thinking i'm like you know man i hope this works out for kyle like at the end of the day because you have too much individual education for somebody to do a group template group class. Like again, not that that's below, like it just, I'm like, the guy's just too smart to fucking waste it on a group class thing. I really hope this training thing tank works. And obviously it's fucking worked out really good. You guys have some of the top athletes in the game there. You have some phenomenal coaches. I remember you turned me on to Evan, you know, and the great shit that he puts out. Um, talk to me now about what you guys are doing currently in the space. Cause it's, I mean, and it's not just like, I always thought of you guys as, education for someone who wanted to coach at that high level. And I think a lot of people just think of you, Oh, I hire them if I want to perform at that high level. Yeah. Well, I think we, we really have multiple arms to the business now, you know, it's 10 years in the business is a lot different than it was in 2013 when we, you and I first started working together in 2015 when I moved to Atlanta. So now we have, we have kind of like three main arms. We have our one-on-one, this is our bread and butter, our one-on-one individualized coaching where, you know, if you were coming on board, we'd have this long conversation about what your goals are, what you're trying to do, you know, what your what your background is, what are your biggest strengths, what are your weaknesses, what kind of obstacles, you know, are you going to face, you know, trying to move forward with your goal. And then, you know, we create absolutely individualized training. And you can attest to that. I mean, you we work together for years and it's like, you're like, has anyone else tested this? I was like, no, I created this entirely, exactly. yeah. entirely created for you. Um and so that's our individual arm. And then we have our, our group training arm, right? And it, there's no getting around it. Like you, you need to have some kind of offering that allows people to build a community. And that was one of the things we saw about four years ago is that we have all these individuals, but there's no way to build a community. So we built the TTT Compete program. And the Training Think Tank Compete program is a, a big, you know, it's, it's bucket training, right? We have an elite path. We have an RX path labels that are really common in CrossFit. We have an intermediate path where it's more skill building. Um, we have a master's path for people that really kind of caters to 40, you know, 40 to 60 age, age range. And then we have all these fixed link skill programs and things like that. So it's an opportunity for CrossFitters to find training that's really well thought out and, and kind of, it's not individualized for them, but it's individualized for the bucket, for the, the avatar of that type of athlete. And then the other arm that we've got is our education arm where, where what we're doing is, is educating coaches. Um, we actually just launched, so we, we, we just launched a, a course that we call coaching movement, which is entirely focused on teaching coaches how to kind of do one-on-one better. It starts with, you know, how do we analyze movement? How do we take someone who has a, has, what do we say? Disparate goals, right? Someone who wants to run a marathon and still be jacked. Like, how do you take someone and analyze those two completely separate goals and then run a movement screen on them, determine what, where we can find economy, where can we find efficiency, and then take all that stuff and put it together in a training program, right? So it like teaches you the nuts and bolts. You and I did, did OPEX and we did some of these other certifications back in the day. The biggest problem that I always had is they are throwing knowledge at you. They're throwing information at you, but they never told you how to do it. They never told you how to go from step one, here's your client, do a movement screen. 
Okay, now you have a movement screen, build a template. Now you have a template, build a training program. They never laid that process out, how to go from A to B to actually creating progress in a client. And that's really what, we, what we're trying to do. And so this is the first, the coaching movement course that we just launched. It's the first of a five-part certification or certificate, coaching certificate program that we're creating. And I think it's gonna, our hope, I don't know if it's going to, but I think it's going to create some waves in the the individualized coaching market, which is really where we, you know, it's our bread and butter. And I love that because there are a lot of owners, like when the OPEX license model came out, I was very, I'm very close with Jim Crowell. I think Jim did a great job growing that program to 80. I will say after Jim left that, that license model from my understanding dropped down to well below 50% of what it was. And it is, I've worked, I've had several clients that own individual design gyms. That alone, having just a brick and mortar for individual design is a tougher thing. You essentially have to sell it as personal training and then downsell people into individual design just because it's not – saying individual design, nobody knows what the fuck that is like at, yeah. the market, at the market level. But for remote coaching, I do believe more and more Gold's Gyms, YMCA's, those 24-7 functional fitness staffless models I was referring to, they're going to be more readily available, meaning – you don't need to join any – you just need a gym with this equipment, and you need the coach. That's just, I mean, that's it. And I always – you know, do you need the overhead of the brick and mortar? No, because you're going to – because what? Now you've limited yourself to you know athletes or customers within a 10-mile radius or less. So why don't you just go remote and not worry about having to pay a commercial lease every single month? Um, you just got to prove that you have – the knowledge you have to prove that you know your shit and that's you know gym owners that are butthurt because people follow ben bergeron on instagram and will do his programming in the corner like well why don't they do my stuff why don't they trust me because motherfucker you haven't you haven't talked like you haven't talked as much as he has on the internet and made videos they're consuming his knowledge constantly when was the last time you made a video as to why it's smart to switch your hands on your flip grip deadlift so you're not always internally rotating the same shoulder every single time like why don't you talk about that and it's gym owners don't make the content on what they know they just assume people oh you go to my gym you're gonna think i know everything and you me both though, a lot of gym owners don't have the prerequisite knowledge to make these videos, which is why courses like what you're explaining allow them to kind of like play catch up. You open a gym, you said, I'm a fitness professional. I own CrossFit ABC. But really, you just took a weekend course and you're kind of been figuring it out as you've been going, collecting your Gladwell 10,000 hours. But something like this is at a, such a higher level than what you're going to get at CrossFit level two, three, whatever the fuck they have now. You know, that's one of the things that uh, it's not their fault that that they're not educated in the space. And I think part of that is a function of a lack of education in the space where we the the functional training world is just not that old. And where now people that have been doing it for 10 plus years are actually starting to take some of their experience, their experiential knowledge and trying to put it out there. And I think you're going to see more education that really is targeted towards that demographic. The, the gym owner wants to, you know, build their knowledge base and build their skill base and build systems to, to help their clients, you know, make some real change. I think that's going to, we're, we're going to see more and more of that because up to this point, like what, what did we have to rely on in, in this concurrent training space that we all kind of live in, you know, and have lived in for the last 10 years, there was no best practice because it hadn't existed long enough for best practice to to rise out of the ashes, essentially. Yeah, I'm I'm curious on one thing. You know, I've been noticing, and again, obviously, it's like whatever you're currently doing in the world, you kind of notice more of it. So, as I'm developing this tempo training, this plan for myself for you know this marathon, um, I've gotten to you know work with guys like uh, and do consults with Chris Henshaw. And I've got a good local running coach here and some things like that. I started noticing like Mark Bell prominent power lifter, one of the more popular ones. And seeing this guy now he's out and he's running constantly. Sam Okanala, who is a world, like he is a professional bodybuilder at the highest level. And now he's, he's going to be running the Austin marathon when I'm there. Like, why do we think we're seeing, and you and me know fitness is cyclical, right? If we take it all the way back to, you know, the origins of Jack LaLanne, Right. We look at the Arnold days and Gold's Gym. Then we look at this, you know, Curves, which was the first boutique micro gym type model that yep. imploded. And then you look at CrossFit and then the Orange Theories and F45s of the world. Why do we think now that the far ends of the spectrum, and I don't know whether it's just a moment in time or whether maybe, and I think you have a better vantage point of this than I do, 
why do we think maybe this concurrent training? Because it used to be just like you said, like lift, you know, I lift, running steals my gains. My cardio yeah. is doing sets of 12. Why do we, th- why, why are we, barbell is my cardio, right? There's this, yeah, barbell is my cardio. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think, I think there's something to be said, something to be said that fitness can't really be stuck into one training bucket. I mean, part of the reason, part of what drew me to CrossFit in the first place was the fact that it had an all encompassing definition of fitness, but the CrossFit games don't, at least in my opinion, don't test fitness the way that crossfit defines it right i agree a thousand percent broad time and mobile domain early crossfit games did you remember them running up and down the mountains out there and like and then they did the deadlift ladder yes and and there's this epic video of of chris spieler running backwards down the mountains in california and and you know the next day they're they're doing one rms on the, the the you know the field the soccer field and like that was was crossed. I think it got, it, it definitely changed and morphed into something that was a little bit different, but I loved the concept of CrossFit of that broad time and modal domain that like, you're not fit unless you can run and you can lift and you can pull your own body weight around and you can jump, you know, like you, you're not fit unless you have all of those capacities. And I think what's happening is I think we're seeing in the market finally, the the concept that CrossFit introduced that fitness is way more broad than your bench press or way more broad than your marathon time or way more broad than your mile time. Or, you know, when I got into it, my, my hundred meter butterfly and my bench press, right. And my squat, like that was fitness. I was fit because I was fast and I could squat a lot and I could bench a lot, but then I did a CrossFit workout. Yeah. (laughs) And then at some point I tried my first 10 K and was like, fuck, that was hard. Like that was way harder than what I'm doing on a regular basis. And you just, I think what's happened is, is the broader fitness market has realized that like, first off to be fit, to call yourself fit, you can't just pigeonhole yourself into one type of training. Right. And part of the challenge is figuring out how to organize all those puzzle pieces to create, you know, this, this broad sense of this broad base of fitness and, that's really where I think we'll continue to see the fitness market trend in that direction where people are strong and enduring and fast. You know, I still think one of the things, I think it's the stronger by science guy. He's got a great Instagram. I can't remember the guy's name off the top of my head. Um, but he always talks about the fact that like, as soon as people turn 18, they stop training like athletes and athletes, meaning like running, jumping, cutting, sprinting. Right. So like you're adding in your marathon training and you do your tempo work, but like, just because we're 37 doesn't mean we shouldn't be able to sprint or jump sure. back. Right. And I think that will be, if you want my prediction for the fitness world, we're going to see the endurance stuff start to come in for some of the barbell guys and some of the really strong guys. But eventually we're going to see the same thing happen. Hey, hey Puma, you come and join the conversation. We're going to see the same thing happen um, with speed and agility and, and, to really say that you have a, a well-rounded broad base of fitness, people are going to have to be able to, you know, do sporting and field type movements, cutting, jumping, sprinting, and strength type movements, benching, squatting, deadlifting, strongman type movements, and endurance movements, be able to swim and run and and do a, you know, half Ironman or things like that. And that's where I think fitness will eventually be headed, but I'm probably wrong because I just like all of that shit. And so of course I'm, (laughs) I, I think you're right though. I mean, especially at least on that endurance end, you know, when I think about it, What's one thing everybody, you walk around like, you want to be able to run a marathon? Eh. You want to deadlift 500 pounds? Eh. You want to be able to do your a pull-up? Yes. So like we can get people to a certain place, but the ability to run and the ability to be strong in any capacity are just two, I think, universal desire. The ability to just have those two things. And unfortunately, running is the most popular fitness methodology in the world. It cannot be argued. More people run it for a fitness methodology than every other fitness methodology combined. More people attend as a spectator to the worst spectator sport, which is a race. You want to see your your mom run a marathon? You're going to see her for about seven seconds as she runs by, and then you're hopping on your lime scooter trying uh, to get down to the next part of the course. It's a horrible spectator sport, but more people come out for that. Like More people will come out for the New York City Marathon than three years of the CrossFit Games. It just guaranteed. And it's, I mean, it, and again, it's, it's something so universal everyone can get to. And I think that's why, like, I look at the Mark Bell guys and I see them touching in the running. I'm like, if I wanted to get my message out, I'd go to the lowest barrier of entry there. But like the place that most people should start, walk, 
jog, run. Like basic ability to escape the dinosaurs and the fucking zombies, right? Um, dude, Kyle, this is uh, this has been fun. It's been a good trip down memory lane for me. I, if anyone's listening to this and they'd like to reach out to you, either maybe they're looking for a coach themselves, they're looking for education for themselves as a coach to kind of really level themselves up. So you know, when they listen to guys like you talk, they're like, "Fuck, I'd like to be able to spit the knowledge like he spits." What's the best place for them to get in contact with you guys or to learn more? Yeah, so you can find my Instagram. It's Kyle Ruth underscore TTT for Training Think Tank. Um, and then just check out the Training Think Tank Instagram. I mean, we're and, and the Training Think Tank YouTube channel as well. And the the Instagram is just Training Think Tank. And the YouTube channel is just Training Think Tank. And we put tons of information. We are definitely some of the nerdiest CrossFit, high-level CrossFit coaches that exist in the space. So if you're interested in learning and understanding why we're doing what we're doing, working with high performance athletes. Like we, we give away the sauce in there. We give away all of it. Um, and yeah, I think that's really where, where we try to stay is, you know, we've recognized, I was had this conversation when I was at uh, the gym yesterday, like we've recognized that we're not the cool kids at the table, but we are doing a damn good job with what we're doing. <laughs> I love it, man. I love it. All right, Kyle, brother, thank you so much for coming on today. Fucking means the world. You took the time out. I know you're busy as hell. Cool, man. I appreciate it, Stu. Absolutely.